Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. hosting Victoria Singh today because she is running for Congress and uh, she's a one of the, I think the only sick woman to my knowledge that is currently running for Congress and probably one of the only few sick women ever to run for Congress and uh, we wanted to host her on this podcast because I think getting involved in in, in public affairs and uh, running for office is a critical way for the community to um, introduce itself to the broader American public, because we all know, and the reason why National Sick Campaign exists is to help spread awareness. So, Victoria, we you know we and I had a, had a short conversation a few weeks ago, and you have an incredibly uh, fascinating family background. Um, I would love for you to delve into it, because uh, you are actually part Punjabi and part Ecuadorian. So, can you explain explain <laughs> that? Because I think that for even within the Ecuadorian community and within the broader Sikh community, that's a little of a, a strange combination. So, you I'll, know, I'll up, yeah. Yeah, Gerwin, thank you so much for having me. I mean, that's America, right? I mean, my biracial upbringing, the influence of these two incredible cultures, especially here in Northern Virginia, in my district, there are more than a hundred languages that are spoken. I grew up amongst a variety of cultures and languages and faiths. And I think that's one of the things that makes this region great. It's one of the things that makes America so vibrant. So my origin origin story comes from my, uh, I think I want to start with my grandparents. So my grandparents, my Punjabi Sikh grandparents were living in the Punjab state before partition. After partition, they found themselves in the midst of a lot of conflict and violence. And like many Punjabi Sikh individuals and families, they went to find a new home. Their new home was Bangkok, Thailand, where my father and his siblings were born and raised. And wow. they, uh, you know, my, my father became, you know, as a Thai national and uh, himself, you know, went through living in a country that was foreign to their parents, not unlike my experience. He came here to Northern Virginia and met my mom, an Ecuadorian woman from Manabi, Ecuador. It's part of the, on the coast. They, uh, they fell in love. Uh, my mom had never had Indian food before she met my dad and they started a family. They got married, they had me. And I, you know, there's so many elements, so many rich elements that I, I can't wait to talk about as a part of that. But I, I want to, you know, want to stress that I think it's really beautiful. I, I think in America, my diversity, my upbringing is celebrated. I've had the opportunity to live abroad in other places and uh, it's not always celebrated. And I think it's really important to talk about our stories, to talk about our origin stories, where we come from, how that's influenced the person that we are, because yeah. to have world awareness and also uh, hopefully acceptance uh, about our, all of our communities here in the U.S., yeah, I, t- I totally agree. And obviously, you know, core part of, 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 of Sikhi is that uh, we see all people as equals and as human beings. 
So what was it, what was it like growing up, you know, being biracial, coming from two very different worlds um, in the U.S.? Obviously, um, it's something that is an important part of the United States, uh, the diversity of the United States, but it obviously comes with its challenges. What, what was that like on a personal level, um, you know, just having to kind of navigate the world uh, as, a, as a young person with these two different backgrounds? Totally. So I got to say, you know, there, there's a lot in common between the Latin com, uh, community and culture and the Indian Punjabi. Lots of family, lots of food, lots of heated conversations. Yeah. <laughs> so I, those elements are ones that unite both cultures. Yet, I, you know, there are many differences. I mean, growing up, English are both of my parents' first language. So growing up, uh, there's definitely a lot of funny uh, miscommunication experiences that we went through yeah. as a family cultural experiences. As I grew older, you know, I was really interested in exploring the history of these, of the two cultures that I was a part of. And by, by studying it, I began to understand, you know, the worlds that my parents came from and where a lot of their frustration and where a lot of their, uh, the ways that they see, they saw the world uh, was. I think my parents both instilled the value of me, the value of learning, the value of education, the value of knowing where you come from, being deeply rooted in your faith, in your community, in your family. And that is a value that I carry with me today. I mean, I think my grandparents' story of refugees of, of leaving India, I mean, I hold that with me. And I believe that it makes me uh, it makes me that experience gives me the credibility and makes me an excellent candidate and even hopefully even better legislator. I think when we shorten that distance between lived experience that so many share and the decision makers, that's when we have really good policies. I think in this growing up in Northern Virginia, being biracial, there was, you know, there was always, uh, I think as a young girl, I didn't really understand until other, I, I saw how other people reacted uh, to me. Mm. So obviously my, my last name is, is very, is, reveals yeah. my mm -hmm. Punjabi uh, side very deeply. Mm. Uh, there's always a little bit of a hesitancy when people see me because they, don't so I get mixed in with a lot of different cultures and communities and then obviously when they see my mom uh you know they understand that I have this other side of me I, you know growing up uh it was I, my mom always talked about this experience uh so I I don't know for, for the viewers or what you think but uh to many I look very Punjabi and my mother it looks very Hispanic and so she would you know take me to the park and take me to different places and they always thought that she was my babysitter they, oh, did. <laughs> they, they did think she's up. And I, and I look yeah. very much like my father. Um, yeah. and I, I resent my, my boys. I mean, we have so much resemblance, which I love. And, and also, you know, personality traits come from both sides. So, you know, I, for me, you know, growing up in Northern Virginia, being biracial is, was always, I felt like I was always explaining myself. I was always educating yeah. others and, you know, teaching them about these two parts of my culture and educating them. And it's, I, I have to say that it, you know, it feels that can feel a little exhausting at times when you're constantly, oh, you yeah. know, re-explaining yourself yeah. and, you know, why, you know, why do you have a, got a, you know, it's all these mm -hmm. um, things, but it, I think it's really instilled in me the ability to teach others. And I take that with a tremendous accountability, with tremendous responsibility, the ability to inform others and to spread awareness to the larger community. How did your parents meet? I mean, obviously, 
everyone, every, I feel like every, in a lot of Indian families have a very unique uh, uh, partition story. Your father has a very unique one where he moved all the way out to Thailand and eventually met your mom. I mean, how did they, how did, how did they even meet each other? So I love this story. My mom yeah. was living in an apartment building in mm -hmm. Arlington, where I was born and raised in the district that I'm running in. And she was living in a, in a place that right now is like very trendy and urban and popular. Back in the day, that was not the case. And her roommate had moved out. And she posted in the newspaper, you know, open room, come check it out. And my dad came to, to see the space that she was moving from. And that's how they met. And oh, they no fell way. in love pretty quickly. And they got married at Arlington Courthouse and they had me. And I think it's uh, it's a really, it's a really spontaneous and, and beautiful story. And it was, it happened very fast. And I, it was, I, I asked them, I was like, well, you didn't know very much about each other. How did this? And I think, you know, they said, you know, there's, there's some things, there's some connections that supersede language, that supersede mm -hmm. culture, that supersede, um, you know, faith. It's, there's just this human yeah. connection that you feel. And I, I think it's really beautiful that they were able to, you know, explore that. And, you know, to be real, you know, I think about it all the time. I mean, love it. Like my parents' marriage wouldn't have been possible in the U.S. I mean, we, you know, this was not a place where biracial couples could very easily, you know, could legally get married and very easily be accepted. And I feel grateful that I was born in a time and my parents met at a time where that was accepted and that was celebrated. You know, moving on from your family, you have, you have a lot going on, obviously. I'm sure you're very busy because you're running for office. So what motivated you to run for office? I mean, you're very young. Um, you probably, you're, you're probably in the beginning stages of your career. Like what, what made you kind of take a pause and say, you know, I really want to serve? That's a great question. So my upbringing beyond just the, the cultural and the identity, um, when, you, when we, let's talk about class. So my parents worked minimum wage jobs. Neither of my parents completed a college education and we struggled, you know, to get by. I think it's one of the things that created such unity within our family was just this constant hustle and this constant desire to get out ahead and, and coming here, you know, to this country in order to seek a better life, to have their child, me, have a better life than the one that they had. And when I, you know, I, I, my story, I think, is a story of the American dream. It's a story of so many Americans. I was the first in my family to go to college. I got a full-ride scholarship to go to Stanford. I got educated. I got my master's degree. And then I started working in the tech industry. And I came back home. And I was getting involved. And I spent some time working for Senator Feinstein, as well as um, the IRS back, back here. When I, when I came home, I dived headfirst, you know, started doing local political work, registering voters. Uh, when the vaccine came, started doing vaccine work, distributing that out, working at an elementary school here in the district. And everything that I saw, all the families that I talked to, everybody I talked to, everyone has their version of the American dream. The problem is that the American dream is becoming harder and harder for us to reach. And I kept asking myself, how can something be ours, be meant for us, but not for us. Mm -hmm. And when I took a step back and realized if I was born in Northern Virginia today in the district that I'm running in under the conditions that I grew up in, my story would not be possible. 
it wouldn't because you cannot survive on one on a minimum wage job here which we did when my dad lost his job we would not my parents would have never been able to buy a home here uh, like they were able to do in the 90s there's so many things about our economy that's just not working for the average everyday family and person here in Virginia, Virginia's eighth district. And I decided to run because I believe that my lived experience, my professional experience, uh, my desire to serve the community and build a bridge for a future is missing. And it's something that we need not only for Virginia's eighth district, but it's something that we need uh, for at the federal level as a whole. Yeah. Right. Like what what can we do to to ensure that people can get the skills they need to participate in an economy that is becoming more knowledge based, uh, that is having fewer and fewer manufacturing jobs that don't necessarily require a significant amount of education. Like what can we do so that people can to go to school and continue going to school for the remainder of their lives? Yeah. Yeah, so that, you know, I was just talking to someone on the campaign trail and he was telling me that he's been paying, he's been consistently paying off his student loans. He pays, I think, $800, $900 a month and he's been doing that for the past five years and he's only 20% into paying his loan. And he's like, ridiculous. It, and he, when he looked at it, he was like, wait a second, most of this is going to the interest. Like he's not right. even done. And he's like, what you know what did i do wrong here and i and i feel that too i mean i was really fortunate you know i got a scholarship uh i got pell grants uh stanford at the time if you got in and you couldn't afford it if your parents made less than i think it was sixty thousand dollars a year in dual income they would they would help make sure that you could pay for it right. i mean that's uh not the case in that was a very that was i'm extremely fortunate to have that but the reality when you look around is that young people they're starting off life and they're already behind so the question is you know what are we going to do about reforming the system also when you look at the price of a four-year academic college it's so much more expensive than it was 20 to 25 years ago you know i was knocking doors yesterday and i you know i talked to a voter he's uh, a father and he's like my son is 13 years old and i have no idea how we're going to afford college because it's only going up yeah. yet my salary is the same and he's like look we we did we did well right we did we made money we saved we invested we bought a home we gave our kids the best opportunities but why is this now the single biggest blockade for him achieving education I think we need to start by lowering the price before your academic institution. There's no, you know, we need to really rethink these price points to make it more accessible and affordable to the average American family. Second, I believe that we should make us public state tuition tax deductible. That will alleviate a lot of the pressure and a lot of the weight on uh, the academic institutions. And third, I think we need to rethink what success post K to 12 looks like. Sometimes it looks like a four-year college degree. Sometimes it looks like a trade school. Sometimes it looks like an apprenticeship program. I think when we redefine what that looks like, we'll realize that there's actually more opportunities for young people to pursue whatever their pursuit of happiness is. And at the end of it, right? Because if you think about, I really resonate what you were saying about, you know, what like these skills, you know, when you're comparing your, your um, Columbia education to community college. I, by the way, also went to community college when I was in high school. I went to Nova, mm -hmm. Northern Virginia Community College. Mm -hmm. I took American Sign Language there. It was an incredible experience. It's like one of the 
pro, uh, programs in Virginia, but I did get to see, you know, that differences. And I think honestly, you know, when I look at jobs in the tech industry, when I look at the job community workforce development, you know, all those those jobs don't necessarily dictate that you need a four year, I call it a degree from a four year academic college to be good mm -hmm. at that job. So why aren't our systems conforming to that. I feel like a lot of our policies are archaic. They're, it's almost like we're trying to, we're taking a punch card, we're trying to put it into a computer, when the reality is that we need someone who's participated recently in the workforce, someone who has had the experience of applying for a job, of going through college, of understanding what the needs of today's workforce is. I don't believe we have that in Virginia's 8th District, and it's detrimental not only to the, to the majority of young people that live here, but to the economy as a whole, and shaping a workforce development program and shaping an economy that's going to continue to work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with a lot of that. Here's, a, here's another question, though. Um, and I, I don't expect you to have a, a firm answer to this. I'm just asking this as an intellectual question. You know, so even if we start to educate people uh, in the way they ought to be educated, which obviously, you know, I, I believe in, one thing that concerns me, and I don't, I don't know if there's a ready answer to this, um, but a lot of our economy and through the wonders of tech, I mean, obviously tech has been a wondrous thing. So we're having this conversation in the first place, but in fact, we're not even in the same, same room, right? We're hundreds and hundreds of miles away from each other and people are watching and listening. In. But, you know, crack has been great, but that also means that fewer people are needed to do things in order to create wealth. Mm -hmm. And what, what do we do there? Because yeah. you can, there's companies now like Google or Facebook um, that can make billions and billions of dollars every quarter. Um, and that's putting it lightly, like they're making tens of billions of dollars every quarter. And they don't need that many people. It's not like 50 years ago where like Ford or GM and they're one of the wealthiest uh, companies, but they got to hire so many people to build cars. Or if you're Macy's a long time ago and before all the tech, you needed an army of people that were helping you pick out products and checking you out. You know, all that is, is going away. And like, what, I, I don't know what you, how you get, how you replace that. Yeah, so that's exactly the problem that I sought to solve when I formed this future of work team. And, the, and I, I'd love to share a little bit of how I, I came to that. So I was working uh, in, in, the, in technology and I saw so many things were changing and I really had this yearning to bring technology to a lot of different industries and economies. So I, you know, got formed this team and started engaging with mayors and governors and local elected officials started asking them, you know, what is your biggest concern? You know what everyone told me? The future of work. Mm. What are we going to do when you, exactly that question that you asked, when jobs come, they automate all this stuff away. This was particularly true when I was in Detroit and these, you know, manufacturing, these legendary manufacturing companies. So 
this is the way that, you know, I started thinking about this issue. So the, I mean, the economy is changing, you know, the job sets, occupation, there's no doubt that it's changing. But I believe that along with those changes are going to be opportunities. There are going to be a lot of opportunities for us to, for new jobs. When we look back into the industrialization, we look back into even just the move from, uh, you know, when we, when the development of cars, right? People thought, oh, this is going to be completely disruptive to the industry where we built up all these occupations. What ended up happening when there were so many new occupations that rose up. The question is, is it going to be an even balance? And from our, from my predict, from the work that I did and the research that I looked at, it's not a one for one. So it's not mm-hmm. like it immediately balances out. Over time, it does look like there will be a balancing out and there will be new opportunities. But it's not. Uh, it's we're not going. It's not going to happen so far. So what does that mean? I think what that means is we need a flexible and adaptable system to help keep up with those changes. I'll give you one example. So this is back in 2016, 2017. I was in a wonderful county, McHenry, Illinois, and I was meeting with their local workforce development. And this is, you know, this is in the Midwest, uh, amazing county. And I, they had a 3.4 unemployment rate, which at the time was kind of unheard of, especially in that area. And their surrounding counties weren't, did not have that same, that same level. When I asked, like, how did you do, like, how are you able to, you know, have this such low unemployment rate? And I said, well, we work with our major businesses and the community colleges and the workforce development centers. So we have a very clear picture of what are the jobs are going to be needed not just now, but three to five to seven years down the line. And we get funding from the state, from our state and federal governments to fund those programs. So one example was when I was working in the Midwest, welding was on the decline. If you look at the predictors, welding as an occupation is on the decline due to a a number of different factors. In McHenry, Illinois, when I was there, welding was a job that was needed. So the local Mm. development council got the funding. They said, hey, we're going to need, you know, X amount of welding jobs in the next you know, three to five years, they funded the program, they funneled people into the into these jobs. And what we need to understand is that welding perhaps might not be a long lasting job here, but there's transferable skills in that occupation. And it is incumbent among, I think, among government to find opportunities and create processes where you can easily transfer your skills from one occupation to the other. Something else that I learned when I was in McHenry, that, you know, uh, home care, like because baby boomers are retiring, it's a very large population. We're going to have a huge need for home care providers and elderly Mm -hmm. providers. But she was telling me that you can't tell a man who spent his career working in welding to go and be a home, yeah, care, home care provider, right? It's right. just, it's not, it's not going to fit. And there, and right. she told me, like people like you who come from, you know, these these coastal jobs, and you just think we're an algorithm, plug in, plug out, boom, there you go. And they're like, you're missing a critical piece of this, which is the mm-hmm. human element and understanding that each locality has its own needs. Michigan might not, you know, there are parts of Michigan that weren't needing welding jobs, but McHenry, Illinois was. So mm-hmm. I think we need to create a more flexible system for helping understand how these skills are transferable. Funding on the job training. On the job training used to be well-funded in this country. We don't have mm-hmm. data from on-the-job training since like 1998. You know, this is a critical component. And, you know, I think like in your, in our parents' generation, Gerwin, our parents, they had one job, right? They had their one job and that was their job for their entire career. Mm-hmm. You and me, our generation, we're, we're going to 
Yeah, yeah. What are you for? I studied, I majored in international relations. I, my mm-hmm. master's was in global affairs, focusing in Latin American studies. I then worked in the Senate. I worked in the technology industry. You know, now I'm running for Congress. I mean, there's, it's a very different world for us. And I think that's one that we need to grapple with and we need to prepare for one by funding appropriately and having systems that help or that are adaptable and flexible and able to meet not only the demands of the workforce today, but of that three, five, seven years down the line. Yeah, so just speaking of uh, global affairs, there's a lot going on with global affairs, um, particularly obviously with Russia and Ukraine, but what's going on in Russia or what what has been going on in Russia, um, which is authoritarianism is starting to pop up all around the world and even obviously elements in our country um, that is often coupled with rising hate. So uh, from... A domestic standpoint, how do you think we deal with that? And then from a foreign overseas standpoint, how do you think we deal with the same dynamics? And this is around the rise in hate? Around the rise in hate, I guess, also coupled with um, the rise in authoritarianism, because I think there is a little bit of an overlap, particularly in certain corners of uh, the political spectrum. Absolutely. You know, one is building our domestic resiliency. Uh, As someone who is part of the Asian American community here, we have been, the Asian community, especially with uh, COVID, has been continually attacked. And by the way, this is not happening, you know, in rural, just rural, I mean, this is happening in urban, highly educated areas. I had a friend, I remember when coronavirus first started, a friend that I was working with messaged, you know, our, our group chat and said, you know, I was running on MIT campus. And somebody said, you know, go back to where you came from. Oh, and wow. I mean, that's, you know, you think, I think we tend, for those of us that exist in urban, highly educated areas, uh, that's our, our district is, is highly educated. We're, you know, so close to DC, yet this exists and it exists every day. And I think the question is, you know, are we being as aggressive as we should be in combating and building domestic resiliency and to combat these hate crimes? You know, I've been really disappointed to see not just within the Asian American community, within the Jewish community, there's so many communities that have seen a rise in attacks against them. And I do believe some of it has stemmed from, my belief is it stemmed from the political uh, culture, but I think it really has stemmed from misinformation and the ways in which we receive and uh, believe information. I think Mm -hmm. one of the biggest, I think our generation, quite honestly, like both international and domestic, the biggest threat that we're going to have to deal with is misinformation and uh, and, and media and the press. Uh, I believe that they, that has, a, it's going to have a detrimental effect on our communities and on our young children. I mean, today, uh, when you and I were kids, you know, you got, they would do standardized testing. They would test you to see if you could, how easily you could distinguish between fact and opinion. Mm-hmm. Today, that uh, that test score, it's the lowest it's ever been. And oh, I, wow. it's not just in kids, it's also in adults. Uh, so I'm, I'm very you know, concerned about that. And that's where, again, my technology background fits very well in here. Putting together legislation to combat misinformation, having standards, not just allowing few people to make that decision for themselves. They're forced to make the decision for themselves because we have no standard. Because we have no federal standard on how to approach this. We're, we have no guidelines to give the industry. So, of course, you know, they're going to make their own decisions and, and people are going to get upset. This mm-hmm. is the role of government. 
the role of government is to create standards and processing frameworks that private industry, that different industries can place into and to be on the forefront of those issues. And the result, the consequence, if we don't do that, if we don't have the right people who have the right expertise doing this, is we're going to see further, I think, hate, violence, a rise in uh, a lot of the political rhetoric that is increasingly violent and very concerning to me here uh, domestically. And also we, we see it in international conflicts abroad as well. We recently in Burma and, and many other, and you know, Russia right now is complete. I just talked to a friend who, you know, lives in Russia and completely shut off. They are completely mm -hmm. shut off from any sort of external media. I mean, this is uh, yeah. really concerning. No, it's a really good point. I mean, like, even if you look at the Russian example, like you hear stories about some of the Russian soldiers thought they were going to be greeted with, with flowers on their tanks and they, they go there and obviously they're not, they're not graded as, as, as liberators at all. So it, it, that, that the misinformation point is super interesting. So I mean, what, what can we do about that? Like this is like obviously a perpetual problem for people all around the world. Um, it doesn't seem to be getting better. Um, I, I, I mean, just because, you know, anyone can put out anything now. Right, like at least before. I mean, even I was thinking about this before we even hopped on. Even a few years ago, like literally maybe six, seven years ago, social media still existed, but not obviously to the level where it's at. So, like, you know, if you really wanted to get your message out there, you had to go through a gauntlet of reporters and editorial staff. Obviously, there's some downsides to that, but yeah. there was some sort of informational control. I mean, now it's just yeah you know, it's all open and, and and there's sludge filling through the informational pathways and with like sprinkled in with like nuggets of 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 of, of like things that are helpful or truth so how what do you do there like I, I don't understand how you put the genie or the toothpaste back in the bottle yeah, so I think one is understanding, you know, the technology itself. So you, you make such a great point, you know, the ways that we communicate, the ways that we receive information has changed completely. And the way that the, it's really understanding how the algorithms work. So a lot of the social media platforms, they feed on hateful rhetoric. The, the things that you see, you know, what's what, what you're seeing in your feed, the things that get the most attention, right? What, how are things getting funneled into your feed? How are things getting funneled into you? And the, the comment section and the hate, uh, unfortunately, really drives a lot of that momentum on social media, which, you know, I think is uh, really har harmful. Uh, I think that we should be used. I mean, I'm all, I'm all about free speech. I believe we must protect free speech as, you know, as having family that has lived abroad. I under, you know, I, I believe that the fact that we are a democracy is something that we have to hold with tremendous responsibility, something we have to protect every single day. Because you mentioned before, I mean, authoritarian regimes are on the rise and we as a country need to build our domestic resiliency to protect us from foreign interference, to protect us and our democracy, which is so vital uh, to the state and, and health of our country. And I think we do that by understanding the ways that the algorithms are made. We do that by understanding the ways in which we communicate and how do we create, you know, standards and processes around those. How do we educate? You know, I think one of the things that I learned when I was working doing vaccine distribution 
I had families come to me and I was largely working with a non with immigrant families. They'd come to me and say, oh, you know, I just read that if I get the shot, you know, I'm going to, you know, something bad's going to happen to me. Like I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, so many things. And I said, well, where'd you read that? And they, they would show me and it was, you know, an article on Facebook uh, that wasn't sourced correctly, that was completely misinformed. And I right. think when I, when I would, when I would talk to them, I said, well, you know, let's think about this, you know, where let's verify, let's go through some of these points. Let's think about it. And when we had those conversations, we at the end were able, were able to understand, okay, this is an opinion piece, right? Like this is something that someone is putting out there of opinion, not fact. And it helped shape. And I said, well, why don't you read a series of opinions? Why don't you read a series of different articles to have a more well-rounded you know, perspective? You know, it's, it's things like education and how I, I believe, you know, fundamentally are, you know, educating our population is so critical to help combat a lot of the challenges that we're having today, especially when it comes to hateful rhetoric, you know, violence and public health. I mean, this, if, if we were go, if we were living in the age that we were, you know, during measles, that would have, I mean, that would have been, right. yeah, that would have been so, bad. you know, this, I think this is really the nucleus of so many other issues of business, of public health, of education, of acceptance of, of every community, every people, and those those uh, systemic issues are not being addressed at a at the legislative level in the ways that they should. And uh, the other thing is technology. The growth of technology is exponential, so that means that we're already playing catch up. And the laws that we put forth, the legislation that we propose, has to be adaptable because you can't think of fitting it into the current technology box. It has to be adaptable to fit to how technology will evolve. Right. And I think so many policies, when I talk to people in the disabilities community, when I talk to people in the LGBTQ plus community, when I talk to people in the Asian American community, we have legacy uh, legislation that, that are, it's amazing, right? That are really good for their time, but it hasn't been updated. It has not met the needs of the current of our current system and that is a problem and i think part of the problem is that we have we have wonderful legislators who have served our country in so many wonderful ways but it's time to pass the torch it is time to let a new generation it's time to let a generation that has lived in today's economy that has lived in today's world to shape the future of legislation to shape the present of what our communities look like and the sooner that we can do that the sooner that i think we'll be able to craft a world that is welcoming and build domestic resiliency that it's going to help our country and help our communities thrive. So, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because there's, I think I've heard a saying that humans can build technology faster than they can gain wisdom. And that seems to be happening in real time uh, on on a global scale. But you also brought a good point that our politics seem broken. I think everybody feels that way. Um, pretty much everyone I know feels that way, left and right. And a lot of that is is due to the fact that our politics has gotten very heated. Mm. Um, you know, almost in the last several decades, more and more and more. What, what can we do to turn down the temperature here and actually start solving problems? Because I think it's getting to the point where, I mean, I think people are always a little bit cynical about politics, but I think we're reaching an all-time high where people just don't even want to hear what what a politician has to say because they just, it's all spin and they're all just fighting for their side, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what is, how do we, how do we 
tone down our politics so that we can actually solve problems? I think we have to start by focusing on the issues, focusing on kitchen table issues that affect most Americans. That's jobs, that's the economy, that's education, it's housing, it's immigration reform. By focusing on the issues, you start to build, rebuild trust that has been degraded over the past uh, decade. When I talk to voters, I was just having some conversations with voters this morning, they're so disillusioned with government. Like you mentioned, it's on both sides. It's mm-hmm. independents, it's Republicans, it's Democrats, it's libertarians. And the only way that we are gonna build trust within our institutions is by talking about kitchen table issues and proposing pragmatic solutions to addressing the challenges of today. Are we gonna overhaul the healthcare system in, in, in two years? No. But what can we do today to start building the fundamental blocks that are gonna help create a better system for tomorrow? That's what we've been doing on this campaign, and especially in our district, Northern Virginia, where you know housing for housing affordability is a top priority for issues. College affordability is another one. Jobs in the economy, workforce development, and we house Amazon here in the district. I mean, these issues are ones I talk about every day. I think moving away, you know, towards a. I think there's a you know in politics today there's a lot of you know you need to get these sound bites right the, the way that you get the media attention the way that you get uh, any sort of attention is by the more outrageous you go the more outrageous policy position you state the more attention you're going to get uh, when instead I think we should have a system that's rewarding uh, pragmatic policy making that's rewarding kitchen table issues it's actually rewarding you know real conversations that you're having with everyday Americans uh, that's what's going to resonate with people that is what's going to feel like politics is working for you as an individual and not just for the system that uh, that's not benefiting anybody yeah yeah I agree last couple of questions what about your sick background and jobby background? motivated you to run for Congress? Like, what was it about that background that really kind of inspired the passion of all of the issues that you're, you you kind of articulated through this whole conversation? Absolutely. I think it's, it's the love that I have for my Punjabi Sikh community. You know, we, we are soldiers, right? That is our heritage. I truly feel that I am a soldier in this campaign, you know, fighting every single day for a better America, for a better Virginia, listening to the needs and concerns of every community here, understanding what it's like to come from a minority community, to not, to understand what it's like to feel unseen and unheard has given me the ability to see the unseen, to hear the unheard, to listen, and to understand how I can help and what we can do to build a future that is brighter than the one that we have today. You know, I like I mentioned before, I carry my family's refugee story with me. I carry those experiences with me every single day. And I carry those because of the love that I have for my family, for their sacrifice, for me to be able to be here running for Congress, talking to Mm -hmm. you about this run. And I believe that when we, when we put our love of country, our love of community before anything, it drives you to seek the best solution, not the, not the politically, you know, career, the one that's going to get you the most votes, not the one that people want you to be, but the one that is right, the one that is actually going to uplift all communities. And when we do that, when we have people that come from our communities who share that love and share that vision, it's only additive to the conversation because you have a voice 
there that's representing a community. You have a perspective there that is sharing a lived experience that I believe is absent right now from Virginia's 8th District leadership from the Hall of Congress. And that's when you make the American dream really work. Mm. Uh, very last question for you. And thank you for your time. I'm sure you're always super busy, particularly when you're running a campaign. So we, we thank you for spending all this time with us. What would your advice be if, if, if someone listening to this is also interested in running for office? There's been so many moments in my life where I've been told I'm not the right face. I'm not the right person for the job, for the school, for the opportunity. I need to wait my turn. I need to go get more experience. And that, those forms, that way of, of I've continued to hear that when I launched this campaign even during the campaign, even when we have done extremely well in a lot of different areas, my advice would be for so many of us who come from minority communities, from those of us who have come from an immigrant community, for, the, for those of us who may be oftentimes the only one of us in a room of people, I think there are two outcomes that, that come out of that. Either you let, your, you let the world tell you, define you, and tell you who you can be and how you can be that. Or you develop a sense of which what, what I've developed, which is I hear them, but I don't really hear it. Like when someone says, oh, you, you probably can't do that. I hear, well, maybe I can. If someone says, oh, there's no way that you're gonna be able to win this. I hear, oh, but maybe I can. There's, mm -hmm. Even if there's a 1% chance, mm -hmm. that's a 1% one, one chance that I'm willing to take and I, I think the, the, the advice that I would give is to not let others define you or define where you can go or your success. You define that. You're the only mm -hmm. person that can do that. And when you have that drive inside of you, that, that pillar, that burning, for me, it's like burning passion that every day I wake up and I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I'm so deeply rooted in my love for my community and my belief in a better future. Nobody can touch that because it's my own. And when you develop that, it's almost like a shield from all the hate, from all of the negativity that's going to come your way because you're beaming out positivity and you're beaming out this love and, and desire for a better future. And if you can develop that, and especially if you want to run for anything, local office, Congress, higher office, that is what's going to keep you motivated and growing and grounded. Uh, and no, and, and that's, and no one's going to be able to take that away from you. That's great. That's great advice. Victoria, I appreciate it for you coming on. Thank you. Uh, I wish you the best. You clearly have a, have a strong grasp on a lot of the economic issues facing uh, our country. And uh, I know it's a long road ahead, as all campaigns are. Um, and, uh, you know, I wish you, wish you nothing but the best. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Subscribe to Sick Meets World on your favorite podcasting platform and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for our next episode, which comes out next month. And of course, be sure to check out the National Sick Campaign website for more information.